For the first time ever, really, we have the knowledge and the power in our field to advocate for the creation of accessible learning materials for all students right out of the box, as opposed to relying on costly and sometimes ineffective adaptations happening after the fact. From the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas, this is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. If my math is correct, this is our 30th episode. For all you repeaters, thanks for continuing on our journey. This episode brings you Adam Wilton, our friend from the far, far north, Canada. I met Adam when he was working on his dissertation a few years ago, and I found him enthusiastic and really excited to talk about our work. I initially invited him to just talk about Canadian services compared to ours, but of course we drifted and included some stuff about beauty of inclusive design, social media, and his dissertation about TBI workload. You'll see why I later call him a learned gentleman. Our service delivery model in Canada is, by and large, um, in inclusive settings served by itinerant uh, TBIs. Uh, and there are a few resource, prog- resource room programs here and there in larger cities. And then we have one specialized school uh, located in Ontario, our most populous province. Mm -hmm. And then we have um, APSI, the Atlantic Provinces Special Education Authority, uh, based in Halifax. And this is an agency that serves um, students who are blind or visually impaired uh, in all four of our maritime or East Coast provinces. And APSI runs a uh, short-term program model. And so similar to what most... um, uh, schools for the Blind in the U.S. and in Canada, W. Ross McDonald would run um, short courses. Um, APSI's, uh, APSI's in-person service delivery, like like on-site service delivery, I should say, um, is kind of based on that short-term, that short courses, short-term placement model. And is that just available within that province, or is that national? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So APSI. Uh, APSI, uh, through, uh, through agreements, APSI serves um, Newfoundland and Labrador, Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick. Um, and so it's students living within those four provinces have the option of attending that program, um, you know, based on, on how it might fit into their, into their overall educational program. And then in Ontario, um, students do have the option of attending W. Ross McDonald um, uh, the uh, the specialized setting. But I should mention, though, that Ontario has a number of service delivery models. Um, so when I was doing my teacher training, um, I was placed in a resource classroom in the Toronto uh, District School Board. So there's a, a... In areas where you find a more dense population, you tend to find more diversity in these service delivery options that are available. But by and large... Um, it's an inclusive model that um, um, that's kind of predicated on itinerant service. Services are generally bound by their province. Um, 
And uh, with the exception of the maritime provinces, which I mentioned, they've, right. they've kind of banded services together under one umbrella. But the key difference I think that's important to mention here is that um, in Canada, there is not an equivalent piece of legislation with the same scope and mandate as the IDEA. Okay. Um, and so in Canada, uh, special education policy is administered at the provincial level because education is a provincial portfolio not and not a federal portfolio. Interesting. So, yeah, so policies here would um would vary between provinces although based on you know um based on many of the uh uh programs that i'm aware of and the collaboration um uh between provinces that that my program or prcbi has with with other parts of the country i've come to learn that um you know we we all generally use the same set of qualification criteria we all generally um actually follow the same requirements for teacher credentialing and qualification um largely because uh there's a there's a narrower band of, of, of tracks that are available for educators who want to train to be teachers of visually impaired students. So there's so even though each province sets it up their own way, they're they're fairly similar. Yeah, they're 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 fairly similar in my experience, mm-hmm. um, and you know that largely has to do with the fact that we have i mean we have a population in the entire country that's comparable to just the population of the state of California right um so we don't necessarily have the population density um in general but then specifically for students who are blind or visually impaired to to kind of have a, a great degree of, pers- of of individualization in terms of of qualification criteria and like teacher credentials and and things like that because we 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 quite frankly can't afford to reinvent wheels given that we're already working in a low incidence um in a, you know we're we're already working within a low incidence set of parameters. So we we've uh, heard you mention a couple times that your current role is more administrative. So why don't you tell us about the the position you're in right now and where sure. you work? I am the program manager of the Provincial Resource Center for the Visually Impaired and the Accessible Resource Center, British Columbia, um, here in the province of British Columbia, Canada. Um, and so these are two kind of. Uh, two programs, but they serve a similar uh, population. Um, so PRCVI, the Provincial Resource Center for the Visually Impaired, is our provincial program serving students K-12 to and their educational teams um, who are, have an identified uh, visual impairment. Um, and so within that, I would liken us to uh, an instructional material resource center. So we're responsible for primary learning materials in Braille and large print. Um, for students who are blind or visually impaired, we also have a resource and lending library um, where we will lend adapted materials, models, kits. We also uh, are uh, an outreach team as well. And so myself and two other um, uh, teachers of students with visual impairments and orientation mobility specialists, um, we're all duly certified and we provide outreach services to the close to 60 um, teachers of visually impaired students here in British Columbia. And so that's on the PRCBI side. On the ARCBC side, our Accessible Resource Center, that is our provincial repository of materials in digital alternate formats for students with perceptual disabilities. Um, so in that 
sense, it's kind of like a, 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 a textbook and learning material online repository, similar like to Bookshare, but mm-hmm. on a much, much, much smaller scale. And so it's really um, creating those accessible formats um, of copyrighted materials under a special provision in our Federal Copyright Act, which, um, which enables us to produce these um, these formats on behalf of students with uh, not only visual impairments, but perceptual disabilities at large. So a perceptual disability, um, as stated in the legislation, is really you know, any exceptional condition that results in challenges manipulating traditional uh, tech, like the hard copy text. So perceptual disabilities are, are sometimes um, also referred to as print disabilities. Okay. Uh, and you know, in in our in our kind of our our, le- our legislative landscape here, and in the uh, in the work of the um, uh, instructional material resource centers um, here in Canada, those terms are sometimes used interchangeably. Um, and that's um, and so we we actually operate similarly to um, to you in the United States with the centralized kind of repositories of alternate format materials. We we have a we have what's called the Canadian Association of Educational Resource Centers for Alternate Format Materials, or CARE for short for mm-hmm. the acronym. Um, and so we're able to share um, Braille files um, and hard copy. Um, Braille and alternate, and then digital formats as well. Um, just so we're not, um, you know, reinventing the wheel. Because if 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 uh, if our sister program in Halifax transcribes a math textbook, well, there's really no good reason why we should transcribe the exact same book here in British Columbia. I think that any time we can reduce wait times and improve the quality of materials available to students, um, that's generally a good thing. And I've been quite encouraged to see that. Um, both nationally and internationally, we're getting more um, legislative work around um, ensuring that um, our students, both at the K-12 and post-secondary level, um, have equitable access to high-quality uh, alternate format materials. If we realize the, 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 the promise of inclusive design, then we won't need to create specialized formats of materials behind the scenes. Uh, it'll come born accessible right out of the box. So what would that look like for a Braille reader? So the there's a lot of work happening now um, in Canada, the U.S., and internationally um, around uh, EPUB accessibility mm-hmm. and looking at what um, sorry, at the at the baseline level of accessibility um, in terms of markup that an EPUB file would require in order to be accessible to a student using a screen reader or using a um, refreshable Braille display. The important thing is not that the file itself be accessible to everyone, but that the file be robust enough to be accessed using a variety of assistive technology and mainstream technology solutions. Um, now we've still got a long way that we've still got work to do um, because of course, you know, let's say you're using um, a science textbook, a biology textbook even. Well, you can have a refreshable braille display and you can have um, a, a screen reader, um, but you're still going to need access to those graphics. Right. Uh, and so there's we're at a really interesting stage right now with looking at at the interplay between 
document accessibility and the um, and kind of those the the, the the rendering software and technology um, and devices that are going to that are going to make that content accessible to the non-visual user. Um, so things like the graffiti from APH or any other larger uh, refreshable tactile display is quite promising um, because that may may in the future decrease reliance on um, tactile supplements with hard copy tactile graphics. I think the thing to keep in mind, though, is that we're not necessarily advocating for a reduction in what's available to students. It's more um, adding greater flexibility to students' tool access toolkits um, so that when they, let's say, they, they move into post-secondary and their textbook is available in an EPUB format, that they know what to do with that EPUB, and then correspondingly, they know how to access, sorry, how to advocate for access to materials that they may be missing, like a tactile supplement um, for that textbook. So I, you know, I was going to ask you about, I, I, you do a lot of presentations at conferences all over the place, and I was mm. going to ask you what some of your favorite topics are, and I feel like this is probably one of them. That's it. <laughs> it, it really is. I got to tell you, Emily, I'm quickly becoming a one-trick pony here, <laughs> because this inclusive design piece is so exciting because when I think of when I came into the field as a, as a TBI, a big part of my job, in fact, one of the only parts of my job really was providing the strategies, skills, and tools and, 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 and attitudes to my students so that they could they could access and compensate. They could access content and essentially compensate for the fact that they were learning in highly visiocentric environments. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, whether I was teaching low vision devices or whether I was teaching um, independent living skills or whether I was teaching um, tactographic skills in a science setting, um, these were these were building a toolkit, but building a toolkit um, to access content that wasn't necessarily designed with my students in mind from the outset. But the really exciting thing about inclusive design and the role of the TVI in doing so, sorry, in the, within that, is that for, one of the, for the first time ever, really, we have the knowledge and the power in our field to advocate for the creation of more accessible structures and materials so that we're we're not we're not we're not kind of working from a compensatory posture we're actually working from you know a a, a really proactive advocacy uh perspective you know my um i mentioned my my colleague and friend um dr Xu, dr ting Ting talks about the TSVI as an accessibility facilitator with school teams, how the TSVI has a responsibility and a role to advocate for the creation of all of accessible learning materials for all students right out of the box, as opposed to relying on um, costly and sometimes ineffective um, adaptations happening after the fact. And so I'm really excited by this because as I said, for the first time in my professional career, I feel empowered to actually impact and change and shape the, 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 the structures, the, the learning platforms, the websites, the, the textbooks that my students are using, um, rather, than, rather than working exclusively from a compensatory piece. So I, I think 
I think inclusive design and talking about inclusive design is incredibly empowering for itinerant uh, TVIs, all TVIs, really. Um, and so that is kind of my long and dramatic way of saying that, yeah, I'm pretty into talking about inclusive design these days. <laughs> now, within um, the various platforms where you engage, you know, I notice, like I mentioned earlier, that you're pretty active on social media. What role do you think that plays in all of this? Well, I have to say that, you know, if I had to, if I had to pick my two greatest sources of professional development since I've, since I trained to be a, uh, a TVI, the first would be going to do my O&M certification. Um, that was huge. Um, even if I never taught a day of O&M in my life, it would be, um, it, it, I, I feel that it made me a better uh, TVI. But then the second one is Twitter. I have made so many contacts and friends and colleagues through Twitter. Um, you know, just recently I presented, um, I presented on, like, on, 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 I essentially had 30 minutes to talk about what I thought were the were the kind of most pressing issues in our field um, to a class of of um, um, TSVIs in training um, in Illinois, and so I would have never been able to connect with that group had it not been for Twitter. Um, in the same in the same vein, you know, I've been um, asked to present to uh, groups of T- TVIs in training at San Francisco State University for several years now. Again, a connection that wouldn't have been possible without Twitter. Um, and so I, I feel like uh, Twitter is a great, or social media in general, is a great platform for teachers to connect with one another, particularly for those of us who work in low-incidence fields where we, we may be the only itinerant teacher in our districts or even our regions. Um, and so those professional connections are huge and it's also not just about professional connections and community it's also about resources and staying current um you know we um we here at prcvi we have a lending library um that we operate on on behalf of teams from across british columbia well i'm often out of my desk chair shooting across the hall to my my library staff soon as I see a new product come come on Twitter from APH and and so if you're if you're if you're on social media and you're actively engaged you're you're really well positioned to be an early adopter uh, at some of the real innovative and and, and cutting edge practices materials and tools in our field yeah I agree I learn about all all the latest things like even conversations about shifts people are taking you know talking about terminology that came up to my attention mm-hmm. on Twitter uh, new textbooks that come out from different sources from Europe from you know a variety of places so oh absolutely and not even from within so both within um, our field of blindness and visual impairment, but also connecting with, with those in other communities as well right. um, who have a similar interest in, let's say, let's say for example, we're looking at um, you know, how professionals are negotiating um, intersectionality for students with, dis- students with exceptionality and how they're, how they're negotiating, let's say, a student's sexual orientation and, and, and helping to make more responsive, supportive services that are not just tailored to a student um, who's, who is blind or visually impaired, but a student who, you know, may have um, 
some 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 other human difference right. um, and that we might not well understand in our community of students who are blind or visually impaired. We can go out and learn from others, um, and in that way, um, we're looking more at the whole student rather than um, just a segment of that student's that student's functioning and, and kind of who they are, um, not only at school but in the world. Right. Right. So you're obviously uh, a guy that likes to do a lot of research, and you're a learned, a learned gentleman. Um, and so I, I think I actually met you when, um, as part of your doctorate studies, we you got yes. we got in touch. Uh, I was in Washington yeah. State then. Um, but what I, I don't know if you want to talk at all about your research and why you picked sure. that for your topic. But um, I think that was an early question that I skipped. So my my research was primarily concerned with how um, workloads are determined for itinerant um, TVIs, specifically looking at the administrative determinants. And so many caseload analysis approaches that are that are quite familiar in North America, whether it be through, you know, the visit in Texas or the Michigan scales, um, these are tools that are primarily bottom-up in the sense that they're considering the in individual student um, uh, requirements, characteristics, learning media, and so on. And while I definitely will always agree with with the notion that these this is where caseload analysis or workload analysis, as I like to call it, um, I and others rather, um, it really... Um, it really also needs to expand to consider some of these more top-down processes. So I was really interested in what are the administrative level determinants of uh, teacher workload um, because I felt like there was a need to understand these. And this really came from my work as an itinerant teacher because I would take all of this evidence, you know, the result of caseload analyses, the the um, it notes and 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 records on my individual students, and I would take this to my administrators, and um, they would they would take that information. But then I, as an educator, didn't really understand what else they had to to consider, or I didn't really understand the kind of administrative landscape um, within which they had to negotiate um, to to arrive at you know a teacher workload. So. Uh, the kind of the, the 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 essential part of my study, or the, the essential question of my study, is was um, what do what do special education administrators who have a background in blindness and visual impairment what priorities would they communicate, or what or what would what would they want their colleagues who don't have a background in visual impairment to to consider when determining a workload for for itinerant TSVIs? And you know the interesting thing that came out of that research was it, first off validating the fact that we need to start with student focused or variables. So, so those things like students' learning media. Um, the, uh, whether or not students are approaching a transition in their educational career. Um, and, and so those student-focused vari focus variables were really were, were, were quite uh, prominent. But then there were also these more secondary and tertiary level, level variables that experts also felt that um, administrators needed to consider. So an example would be um, how experienced the TSVI or TVI is. 
Um, or does the, the, does the TVI or the TSVI have an opportunity to collaborate with other with other vision professionals, or, or do they have time to collaborate with members of the educational team? And then more broadly, um, you know, the the workloads should, according to my participants, you know, be be informed by the 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 local the the local regional provincial slash state uh, policy landscape. So what I what I found essentially was that the process of workload determination is more ecologically oriented in terms of, you know, you've got these factors that are more proximal to the student, like learning media, and then you've got those factors that are more distal, like special education policy um, and inclusive education policy. And essentially the, 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 the broader finding is that when we're determining workloads for itinerant teachers, You've got to kind of consider that 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 ecology as opposed to just those um, those those kind of bottom up, more like student specific uh, factors. In Texas, we're working on a workload tool to partner with the Visit. It's going to be called mm-hmm. the VISPA, which I, oh. I can't remember what it stands for. But um, so they're looking at all the other factors on top of student services that are part of a workload analysis. And oh. I, I bet that committee would love to, to see some of the work you've done as well. Absolutely. I was so grateful to the experts that I was able to to connect with for this study because just the, the richness and the depth of information that I was able to gather, um, you know, I, I, I think there's just there's so much more that could be done um, with these data because it was a really, really unique, um, it was a really unique group of professionals. Well, I, I really enjoyed doing it with you and, and going through, I mean, it was very robust. You had a robust uh assignment for me if i remember correctly <laughs> but it was it was, it was yeah great. it was it was it was very robust <laughs> and it was but it was it was largely because you know it, i knew that we had such an opportunity mm-hmm. with the group of professionals and, and experts that we got that i was able to kind of pull together for the for the study and it was it was quite uh yeah i i really feel like there's there's so much more in those data. Um, it's just a matter of of kind of finding yeah. the, the, the 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 time and the and the and, and the space and and um, and then for me also connecting what, my research to what I'm working on right now. And so so I'm just at this, at this like I literally literally as we speak trying to build those connections between workload determination um, and this conception of the TVI as accessibility facilitator, or, or I would even go so far as to say accessibility champion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. That seems like something that comes with a cape. So Yeah, I mean, I'm working on the logo as we speak as well. Um, <laughs> I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to, or, or, yeah, I think it's, 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 it should come with a cape, but it's but it's you know it's so true that you know yeah. we, we have so much in our field mm-hmm. that we could offer the broader community of, of around inclusive education, um, and I and I think that this 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 notion of of inclusive design, which which is not just a niche concept anymore, you know the 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 World Wide Web Consortium has the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. I mean, these are the people that oversee standards for the internet. And there's very robust accessibility standards that that web developers um, and others can can follow to make 
to make content that's accessible um, across the board, um, as opposed to just you know those who who have quote unquote typical vision. Well, Adam, we're almost out of time. So is oh, there anything else? Well, this has been else? great, Emily. I'm so delighted that you gave me a chance to <laughs> rant on the phone lines to you. Well, it's been fun. I, uh, you know, as um, as not not nobody saw my questions, but you and me. But you know, I wasn't really sure how much ground this would cover. So. At the end, it's like any other random questions Emily comes up with. <laughs> but I think we covered a lot of ground, and uh... we we did. We absolutely <laughs> did cover a lot of ground. And and thank you for for the opportunity to articulate some of these things because, you know, these are these these are these are really kind of pressing hot button things. And and I'm just glad to be able to articulate them and and hopefully. Yeah. Um, you know, through your podcast and your advocacy, bring other people into the discussion. Are you looking to find ways for your child to have increased participation in their lives? Join us February 27th through the 29th at Hyatt Regency in North Houston for Texas Focus 2020. At the conference, we will explore tools and strategies to empower all children with visual impairments. For registration and information about events at Texas Focus 2020, visit tsbvi.edu. Given Adam's broad perspective and expertise, I think he's safe from becoming a one-trick pony. He has such a positive outlook on our field, and I look forward to seeing him at the next event. You'll want to follow him on Twitter at TBI underscore Adam. From the TSBVI Outreach Department and A Sense of Texas, I'm da-da-da-da accessibility champion Emily Coleman. See you next time. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu. Da-da-da-da! Accessibility champion, Emily Coleman. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs>